for each and every one of us, one that addresses head-on many of the questions and the challenges that we all face, whether in our work, our relationships, and in our quest for meaning, identity, and purpose. And this morning is certainly no different. And before we dive into our sermon this morning, Lindsay is going to read our passage. And before she does, let me pray for us. Oh, Father, as we gather together this morning, Father, I am grateful that you desire to meet us through your word by your spirit. You are, you are so kind to want to do that for us. And this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus, and that we would be captivated by him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This, is, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will, with, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Thank you, Lindsay. As we approach our passage this morning, I think we're hit right away by the reality that the preacher knows something about each and every one of us. He knows something about the core of who we are as a person. In these verses, we, we see the writer of the Ecclesiastes, we see the preacher here showing us that he knows one of our most intimate longings, and he knows one of our most personal fears. The preacher knows what we desire, and he knows what we dread. And in this passage here, he comes right out and he names them. And what is our, what is our desire? In a very pointed fashion in this passage here, the preacher speaks to our desire to belong. To know that we are part of a body. To know that we are part of a community where we are known and where we are loved. You see, the preacher knows that belonging is one of our most visceral desires. We ache to be received, to be accepted, to be taken in. As the writer Jen Pollock puts it well, she says, we want to be recognized and in our absence missed. We long to belong. And on the flip side of this desire is our dread. And the preacher, perhaps speaking from personal experience, knows that you, just like him, dread the idea of not belonging. 
One of your greatest fears is the thought of growing old and being alone, of experiencing a sort of perpetual loneliness. I think in a very raw and personal interview that he gave to Rolling Stone a couple years back, Elon Musk spoke very candidly about this fear of being alone. At one point, at one point in this interview, Elon Musk says to the interviewer, he says, I will never be happy without having someone. Going to sleep alone kills me. The writer says, he hesitates, he shakes his head, he falters and continues. It's not like I don't know what that feels like. Being in a big, empty house and the footsteps echoing through the hallway, no one there and no one on the pillow next to you. How do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? Reflecting on being alone, the writer says that Musk's demeanor changes. Red rings form around his eyes. His lips begin to tremble as he's overcome by emotion. And then he says, when I was a child, there's one thing I told myself. I never want to be alone. His voice drops to a whisper and he says again, I don't want to be alone. These heartbreaking words coming from one of the richest most privileged people on the planet. And here in this interview, he says the quiet parts out loud, speaking what many of us feel but can't bring ourselves to say. The preacher knows our dread. But he also knows something else about us. Because he knows that as powerful as these longings to belong are, he also knows that many of us, if we are being honest with ourselves, he knows that there's a piece of us that pushes back against this idea of living life with others. We live in a culture that tells us that the highest good is individual freedom, is individual happiness and self-expression. This, in this story, the story has seeped into our bones. It's seeped into each and every one of us. And as we consider living life with others, we think of the cost and the constraints that that is going to put on us. And all too often, the, the costs and the constraints of belonging to others, of surrendering our lives, our calendars, our bank accounts, you fill in the blank, the cost of community are just too high. And so we're stuck in this tension of wanting to want to live in community, but also wanting to live life alone. And it's into this tension that the preacher speaks this morning as he compares two visions of life and he offers his conclusions about each of them. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look together at each of these visions of life, these two visions of life. We want to see his conclusion about each of these visions of, of life. And I want to spend some time applying this passage to our life and to our life together. So the first vision that the preacher gives us in this passage is the vision of the life lived alone. We see this vision of the life lived alone in two stories, the first in verses 7 and 8, and the second in verses 13 to 16. So look with me at the first story, what I'm calling the story of social isolation in verses 7 and 8. The preacher says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
here in these verses, we see a picture of a man who's all alone. He's living life completely isolated from others with no meaningful relationships. The preacher tells us he has no friends. He has no family. And completely alone, we see that this man turns all of his attention to his work. In fact, the preacher says that he is always working and never satisfied. Now, as we consider this story, I think it would be a mistake for us to look at these verses and to see in these verses just another story of someone choosing to focus and invest all of their time in the work, in their work, while they are intentionally neglecting friendships with other people. I think it would be a mistake to do that. Because while there might be elements in this story here in verses 7 and 8, that while there might be elements of him intentionally choosing to focus on work, we simply can't ignore that part of this man's isolation is unchosen. It wasn't this man's choice to not have a brother. And we don't know the circumstances around him not being married or having any other children. Or having any children. So I think it would be unfair for us to sit in condemnation over this man, thinking he's choosing work over relationships. Instead, I think this story is meant to fill us with compassion. I think it's meant to, to, to point us to people like Elon Musk. Here in verses 7 and 8 is a picture of a man who's so lonely that he sinks himself into work, working long hours striving for more and for more, doing anything that he can to distract himself from the cruel reality that when he's done with work, when he leaves the office, he's going home to a house that's empty. He's cooking a meal for one. He's sitting at a table by himself, a table that's meant for six. And for this man, he only has Netflix to drown out the silence. So he stays at the office. He volunteers to lead another project. He takes on more and more work, anything that will distract him from asking the question, who am I doing all of this for? Because he knows that the answer is worse than the work. This is the first story, the story of a life lived alone, one of isolation. In verses 13 to 16, we see the preacher's second story. And this one is a bit different, perhaps the, the flip side of verses 7 and 8. As in these verses, we see the story of pride and popularity. Starting in verse 13, the preacher says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations about some of the details in this story here, but it seems like at its core, this preacher is telling the story of two people, a poor and wise youth, and an old and foolish king. And I think in each story, we are to see a picture of the life lived alone. In verse 13, we see the story of pride. In his foolishness, this old king here has isolated himself from everyone, sending away all his advisors, because as the preacher tells us, he no longer knew 
how to take advice. This is a picture of someone who's convinced themselves that they know best, that they have it all figured out, that they are able to solve their own problems. And we all know how this story ends, right? In verse 15, it tells us that this king is removed from the throne and he is replaced by the poor but wise youth. The life of pride and independence here, the life that sends everyone away thinking that we know best, that we don't need the input of other people, that life ends in humiliating isolation as now this king doesn't even have the trappings of royalty to comfort or to distract him. And as the preacher continues, we see that the story of the poor but wise youth isn't quite a rags-to-riches story, but one highlighting the loneliness of popularity. In the first half of verse 16, the preacher shows us the extent of this young king's popularity. He says, you see it there, he says that there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Here we're meant to, to picture this king surrounded by people, this young king surrounded by people who admire and who look up to him. Wherever he goes, he is the center of attention. This young king is the life of the party, and he is always invited to the party. His pictures are always liked, and he has more followers than he cares to count. And all is great for a time. Popularity seems to be giving this king everything that he longs for, but this too doesn't last. As the preacher continues, we see the end of this story. Verse 16, the preacher tells us, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Here we see that the excitement surrounding this young king dies quickly, and the people that at one point in time surrounded him they soon lose interest as the fickle crowds move on to the next best thing. And now this king experiences a worse kind of loneliness as he's gone from being surrounded by people to being all alone, and the silence is deadening. You see, the preacher wants to be sure that we don't confuse crowds with companionship. It is one thing to be popular, and it is quite another thing to belong. And what's the preacher's conclusion about these two stories? We see it in verses 8 and verses 16. In verse 8, the preacher, looking at the, the, the story of social, social isolation, he says, this is vanity and an unhappy business. In verses 16, looking at the story of pride and popularity, he says, surely this is vanity and a striving after wind. Vanity. An unhappy business, striving after wind. These are the words that come to mind for the preacher when he thinks about the life lived alone. As I thought about these verses, I was reminded of the infamous tweet by Marcus Person, who's the, the creator of the wildly popular video game Minecraft. In 2015, after selling his company for billions of dollars and getting what he said everything. He, he sold his company. He gets everything that he ever wanted. He tweets to the world, hanging out, I think I'm pronouncing this right, hanging out in Ibiza. It's a small island off the coast of Spain. He says, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And here's the punchline. He says, and I've never felt 
more isolated. Money, power, position, popularity, and what did it do for him? It did absolutely nothing. It was all vanity. It was striving after the wind because it, didn't, because it couldn't deliver what he desired. It couldn't deliver what he longed for. As he says, he's never felt more isolated. This about sums up what the preacher wants us to see from this vision of the life lived alone. But thankfully, this isn't the only vision he gives us because sandwiched in between these two, these two visions of the life lived alone, to, to accent, to draw our attention to them, sandwiched in between them is a vision of the life lived together. Starting in verse 9, the preacher says, two are better than one. Unlike the other stories where the preacher holds off on his conclusion to the life lived alone, in this story where he talks about the life lived together, he just comes right out and tells us his conclusion. And what is it? He says, it's better. It is better to live life together. He's saying, this is the life you want. The life you want is the life lived with other people. Throughout this book, as we've seen and as we're going to see, the preacher is quite a Debbie Downer. He, he highlights a bunch of things, and he always, at the end of the day, throws up his hand saying, that, and that, that, that's meaningless too. Oh, this thing that seems great, yep, that's meaningless too. It's all vanity. But when he comes here, when he starts talking about living life with other people, all he can say is it's better. All he can say is that this is the type of life you want to live, and this is the life that you want to live because this is the life that we were created to live. Two are better than one. As this skilled observer, as he looks around, as he sees other people living in community, other people working together and meeting each other's needs, he concludes that life is better when we live life together. And just to, to sure this up for us, he gives us three illustrations from daily life to show us why life is better when we live life together. In verse 10, he says that two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. In a world where, tr where, where travel was difficult, in a world where a fall could mean certain death, living life together is better because if you fall, you have someone to pick you up. The second illustration in verse 11, he says, If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Here the, the preacher evokes an image of two people providing warmth to each other as they lay close to each other on a cold night, sharing their cloaks and sharing their body warmth. And unless we be mistaken as we look at this verse 11 here, there's nothing sexual in this verse at all. It's not about a husband and a wife, but the preacher probably has in mind two travelers who are out in a very cold night in the middle of a desert, laying close to one another, meeting each other's needs as they provide warmth of their cloaks and warmth and the warmth of their body heats. The last illustration here follows from the first two, and it shows us that life is better when we live life together because there's safety in numbers. The preacher says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, the preacher knows that there's inherent vulnerability to life. Living life alone is vulnerable. It is not always safe. 
Just think about the last time you found yourself walking alone at night or walking in a new place. It's completely understandable that as you are, are walking, as the sun begins to set, as it begins to get darker, that your heart might begin to race a little bit faster, as your palms might get a little bit sweaty, as you are aware that you are alone and you are vulnerable. But just think about walking down that same street with someone else, or better yet, a threefold cord, right? Better yet, with three or with more people walking down this street with others, you'd feel a lot safer. And that's what the preacher is getting at here. He's saying that while one person might be overcome by themselves, when you're with another person or when you're with a group of people, there is safety and there is security. The point of these three illustrations here is that life is full of challenges and difficulties. And as we come face to face with them, and we will come face to face with them. In fact, you right now are very aware of the challenges and the difficulties that you are face to face with right now. And as we face those challenges, it is better to have someone with you to walk through them with you. And while the preacher mainly highlights the physical benefits here of two are better than one, we know that living life together has emotional, has spiritual, has mental health benefits as well. And this makes sense, right? We see the preacher telling us two are better than one. We know this makes sense. We know life is better when we live life together because this is how God created us to live. Just think back to Genesis 1 and 2 where you have Adam in the Garden of Eden. And even though Adam was in perfect relationship with God, right? God walked in the garden. Adam was in relationship with God. God still says to him, it is not good that man should be alone. God is telling us here, relationship with him, while essential, is not alone. It is not good. It's not good that man should be alone because God has created us as embodied beings to be surrounded by other embodied beings. He has wired our brains in such a way that we come into the world looking for someone, looking for us. God has created us for community. He has created us to belong with other people. We have needs, and God has created a body and a community to meet those needs. And that is why life is better when we live life together. So we've seen these two visions here. We've seen the preacher's conclusions. We've seen the vanity of the life lived alone, and we've seen the better of the life lived together. And as we close our time together, I want to I take a look at and consider a couple applications together. Because as we think about that tension that we all live in, that tension that we all experience between longing for community, but also being very aware that something inside of us pushes back against living with others. I think this passage calls us, in the midst of that tension, it calls us to two actions. I think the first action this passage calls us to is to embrace our neededness. The preacher is calling us here to embrace our neededness. One thing that's unmistakable from each and every verse in this passage here is that each and every one of us in here this morning is needed by other people. 
the man in verses 7 and 8, the old king, the young king, all the situations in verses 9 through 12 highlight the reality that the people around us, the people sitting next to us, sitting in front of us, sitting behind us, the people all around us need us. Whether it's a struggle with sin, whether it is a season of suffering, your brothers and sisters in this room need you. And just because you might not be married, I just want to highlight here, just because you might not be married or you're not a parent, just, just want to say the quiet part out loud here, I don't want you to think that that means you are unable to help the marrieds or the parents in here. You, as a single person in this room, are needed by the married couples. You are needed by the parents. So often I can just be mindful of the where of like, I can't help that person or I can't help that couple because I'm not in that season of life. But into that reality, I think the preacher wants to come and tell you, no, no, you are needed by them. And I think for us who are married, I think for us who are in seasons of parenting, we need to see that we need the singles in this body as well. In fact, I would just say as a single person or someone without king, without kids, you are able to bring a different perspective to the challenges we face, one I think that is very needed. So I would just would call all of us in here to embrace our neededness. And as a church, I, think, I can't think of any area where our neededness is more apparent or more needed than when we consider the loneliness epidemic that is just all around us. A study published in May of 2021 showed that 15% of men and 10% of women reported having no close friends. I mean, that is a story of loneliness in the story of social, social isolation. 15% of men say, I have no close friends. 10% of women. And when that number goes up to two, a full third of men and women report having fewer than two close friends. I mean, this is just heartbreaking. I think as we consider and we hear about the rise of deaths of despair all around us, it, 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 they begin to make sense as we see that we weren't created to live life alone, and yet 33% of men and women are reporting having two or fewer friends. And I think as sad as this reality is to consider happening out there in the world around us, I think it's tragic when we realize that this is something that people in the church are not immune to. Because the truth is we have members in this church, we have people who are here right now who are very aware of this experience of loneliness. I think my mind immediately goes to those who are single. I think it goes to those who are gay and lesbian members of this church who have chosen a life of celibacy and singleness and faithfulness to the Bible's teaching on sexuality. I've spoken with you. I know about your very real experiences of social isolation, of loneliness and isolation. And I also know that it's not just those who are single, whether by choice or by circumstance, who are lonely. Because as a pastor recently pointed out, some of the loneliest people he knows are those who are married. I think this passage would have us see that marriage isn't the answer to our loneliness. And we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that marriage isn't the answer to our loneliness because the church is the answer to our loneliness. I think we see this most clearly in just a, an amazing passage in Mark chapter 10 
verses 29 and 30, where Peter comes out to Jesus and he just says, Jesus, look, we've left everything. We've forsaken everything, our friends, our families, our homes, our relationships. We've given up everything to follow you, almost saying, Jesus, what are you going to do? How are you going to solve this problem of our potential loneliness that we might feel or this isolation that we might experience, having given up everything about the life that we had lived before? And Jesus does something amazing, because into this question about what about our potential loneliness, in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus promises his disciples what Greg Coles calls two lifetimes of belonging. <laughs> Great Jesus, in these passages, promises all of his disciples, all the brothers and sisters in this church here, two lifetimes of belonging. We see this when Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. That's, the, that's Jesus speaking into the loneliness and the isolation that some might feel. He's saying, look, there's no one who's left all of that behind to follow me. And he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this now in this time. That's right here. That is right now promise of belonging in the family of Christ. And he continues, um, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and hundred, children and lands and in the age to come, eternal life. In these words here in Mark 10, Jesus is promising us two lifetimes of belonging, lifetime of belonging right here, right now in the church and a lifetime of belonging when we will be with Jesus. Faced here with the isolation that someone might experience by giving up all of their relationships to follow Jesus, Jesus promises something better than they could ever have imagined. He promises a new family. He promises, one, a new family that is no longer limited by the blood of biology, but the one that is formed by the blood of Jesus because in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, restoring our relationship with him, he wasn't just doing that, but he was restoring our relationships with one another. He was creating a new community. He was creating a new family that he is calling to live life with one another. This is good news. The gospel doesn't just save us and leave us on our own, but the gospel saves us from our sin, and it makes us members of a family. Makes us members of a family with those of us who are sitting right here, right now, together. And so, brothers and sisters, let's be this family that Jesus has called us to be. Let's be the family that Jesus has died to create. Let's embrace our neededness, especially as we pursue those right here in our church family who are intimately acquainted with loneliness. And as you consider what this might look like, just let me encourage you. I've, this is a story I've heard time and again. Let me encourage you to not overcomplicate things. Because as we think about what it might look like to reach out to those who are lonely in our body, if you're anything like me, you can want to create a big program. But that's not what, that's not what it is calling, calling us to. We live out our neediness in the small, mundane, and everyday things of life. We do it as we drop off a meal or as we, share, or as we invite someone over to share a meal with us. We do this as we go over to a singles house in our church. We don't always invite them over, but we go to them. 
We do this as we pray for one another and as we send that midweek text or as we make that midweek call. That is how we live out our neediness in this body. Because as we do all of these things, we are making those around us, those part of our family, we are making them feel welcome and wanted. So as we, we consider our neediness, I would just encourage you who are in home groups this week, as you talk about this passage, to talk honestly about what embracing your neededness might look like. I think in committing as a group, committing as a family here to meet those needs around us and just remembering that married, single, whatever your stage in life, none of those are immune to feelings of loneliness and isolation. That's our first call, embrace our neededness. But secondly, I think this passage calls us as well to embrace our neediness. <laughs> if others are needed, it is because we are needy. <laughs> I think this passage here will not allow us to live out what Steve likes to call cowboy Christianity. I think this passage is putting to death forever the approach to the Christian life that says it's Jesus and me. <laughs> we can't have a Jesus and me approach to the Christian life because Jesus didn't call us to live in relationship with him alone. Remember Adam in the garden, it wasn't enough. Being alone was not good, and that is because we need relationships with others. It's essential to what it means to be a human. It's essential to human flourishing, to be in relationship with other people, but we know that this desire to be needy doesn't come easy to us. This experience of feeling needy, of feeling like other people, of letting others know that we are needy is not easy. All too often, we can be just like the king who no longer knew how to take advice as we never open up our lives to one another, as we never let others know ways that they can help us. Instead, we figure that we don't need other people's help as we buy into the lie that we need to be self-sufficient. I think this passage calls us to put self-sufficiency to death as we embrace our neediness and as we reach out to other people, whether as individuals, whether as married couples, whether as families, as we reach out to others, letting them know that we need them. We need to put away keeping others out, thinking that we can solve our own problems, because this would be a rejection of the family that Jesus had given us. This would be a, reje a rejection of the gifts of one another that Jesus has given to us, because the truth is, each and every one of us in here is desperately dependent upon those around us. Just think about a struggle with sin. Just think about, what you're, about a sin that you are battling, that you are fighting against right now. That struggle with sin, that fight with sin has to be done in community. We are not meant to struggle alone, but we are meant to struggle together in the presence of God as a community. As you might already be experiencing, as you might be already aware of this morning, our fight against sin is doomed if we try doing it alone. And this, the beautiful thing about the gospel is Jesus doesn't want us to struggle alone. Jesus has made us a body where we can come, where we can bring our struggles, whether it's with shame, whether it's with same-sex attraction, whether it's an, an addiction, whatever that might be, an addiction to pornography, to drugs, to alcohol, whatever that struggle might be that you're aware of, a, a struggle with anger and anxiety, whatever that might be for you this morning, we are not meant to face those alone. So just think about the relational challenges. Husbands and wives, as you are in here aware of conflict with you, between you and your spouse, you are not meant to deal with that conflict alone, but you need others speaking into your marriage. And this passage here is calling us to embrace 
our neediness, to bring others in, to speak the quiet parts out loud and say, I need help. Because we need help, and our fight against sin will go nowhere if we try to fight it alone. And again, the beauty of the gospel, right, is that it assures us that there is nothing that we could confess to one another here this morning that Jesus hasn't already forgiven, that Jesus hasn't already died to pay for. And honestly, there's no sin that we, should conf- that we could confess to one another that should surprise any of us because we know that the seed of every sin imaginable is in our own hearts. Nothing is beyond us. And so the gospel should create us a community. It should free us to be vulnerable with one another where we confess the hard things in our lives, the areas where we are struggling, where we can can expect to be received and to be welcomed and, and to be embraced and to be helped in our fight against sin or whatever it might be. So this morning, perhaps the Spirit is calling you to embrace your neediness, to be intentional, to bring others into your struggle, whatever that might look like, because we are not meant to fight this fight alone, but we are meant to do so in community because life is better when we live life together. I'm thankful to God that he knows what we need and that he knows and he's calling us to live life with one another. And he's not just calling us to do that on our own, but he's given us a body right here and brothers and sisters who want to live life together. So in that tension, friends, let us embrace our neediness, let us embrace our neededness, and let us live into the better life together. As we end this morning, we are going to end by celebrating the Lord's Supper, a meal reminding us that we are a family that gathers together week in and week out to share a meal together. It's a meal that reminds us that at the culmination of human history, there is going to be an unending feast with a seat for everyone. So as uh, the Lord's Supper serving team prepares, as Scott and Isabella come on up, I think this morning this passage is calling us to celebrate this family meal together, to celebrate the fact that we have been given the gift of a body, the gift of one another. Let me pray and thank Jesus for the gift of the family And then we will take the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that you have, Lord, in your kindness, called us to be a family. You have called us to live the better life together. And because of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, we have been given the gift of family. We have been given the gift of one another. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of our unity, we're reminded of our family, we're reminded of what you've done to gather us together. And so we want to say thank you for that. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are going to go around the outside aisles, grab a thing with the little just thing with the cup and the, the bread in it, and go back to your seats. We are going to celebrate together as a family. And while they and while you are coming forward, while you're holding on to the elements there, give thanks for the family. Let's let this be a time of celebration where we welcome our brothers and sisters as we share this meal together. So grab the cups, come when you're ready, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.